Welcome to the Med Street Journal. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Med Street Journal podcast. I'm your host, Rodney Hu, and today I'm joined by another special guest, Mr. Tim Cohen. He is the co-founder and CEO of ALN, a company that provides revenue cycle management services to independent physician practices across the country. And he's also been working in healthcare for over 30 years. So I'm excited to have him on, learn more about his company, learn more about his journey. And yeah, that being said, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Rodney. Thanks. Good to be with you, man. No problem. So yeah, let's just jump into it. Why don't you give people a brief background of who you are and how you got into the whole healthcare industry? I was getting my graduate degree in industrial organizational psychology, needed an internship to complete the program and local hospitals, HR department, I was looking for someone. And so uh, on my 30 minute drive in, I thought healthcare, I was born in a hospital, had my tonsils taken out, had a knee surgery. That was the sum total of what I knew about healthcare. I ended up getting that internship turned into a job. And not only did I get my career started, but at the hospital there in Tulsa, Oklahoma, found a neonatal intensive care nurse who 33 years later is uh, still my lovely and beautiful wife. Awesome. So now we have ALN. So you're working with a bunch of physician practices and whatnot. So can you give us a rundown of what this company is and what you're doing, what you're working on? ALN is in the revenue cycle management business, which means we turn the work of our providers into cash on their behalf. We like to joke, we are plumbers. We are in some of the least sexy parts of healthcare in working claims, but like plumbing, it's really important, especially if it doesn't work. We've got (laughs) providers from Long Island to the Hawaiian Islands in practices ranging from one to almost 300 providers in almost every conceivable medical specialty. So we have this uh, very unique point of view that is sometimes characterized as we look through lots of little knot holes in the healthcare fence across specialties, across markets, to get a composite sense of how things are going nationwide. We currently, across our organization, process over 3 million claims a year for our providers, just to give you some sense of our kind of size and scale. Dang. Okay. Nice. So you're working with a lot of big companies, a lot of important pieces that you facilitate. And so when it comes to working with all these independent physician practices, what do they need to start focusing on when it comes to revenue cycle management that they may not already be focusing on? Yeah, it's interesting. Provider reimbursement over almost the entire 30 plus years that I've been involved in healthcare has not gone up. It is flat or down. Medicare, for example, on a non-inflation adjusted basis, literally pays a few pennies more or a few pennies less for a unit of physician work today than they did 20 years ago. And if you adjust it for inflation, it's obviously down significantly. Commercial insurance is even uh, down more dramatically on a relative basis. And so our providers are working hard and hitting the the ceiling on how much work you can put in. And so our job in working with them is to not just on the back end, file the claim and follow up on the claim, but help them think about revenue cycle as a process from beginning to end, from, from the time that patient 
is originally scheduled pre-authorization, uh, collecting money at the front desk, coding, all of those parts uh, really belong to the practice, even when they partner with somebody like us. So I think the, the biggest thing I would uh, say to say a new provider who's just learning what's the role that Revenue Cycle plays, don't think about it as the back office of billing, because if you do, you're too late. You've really got to think about a process that runs uh, literally from the beginning to the end. We are the first thing that happens and we're the last thing that happens when that balance finally goes to zero. And if you'll think about it as a process and you'll think that like in medicine, certain things upstream cause certain things downstream, the rev cycle is the same as the clinical process with disease and, and diagnosis. If we can fix things on the front end, we'll get better outcomes on the back end. Awesome. So you just understand their business from a very macro holistic point of view and you see everything from start to finish and are able to track and measure everything to see what you can improve and optimize. Awesome. And so when it comes to like revenue cycle management, what do you see is like a big problem or an obstacle that a lot of companies and physicians face? First of all, let's begin with the fact that if, if you had taken a group of people, not fed them for 30 days, given them annoying sounds of bad opera music and screeching cats and got them in the worst possible mindset and then asked them to design a system, I don't think they would have come up with something quite as convoluted and complex as healthcare rev cycle. So this is a really hard, complicated process. And it's one thing if that's for a hospital bill, let's say that is $25,000, but sometimes it can be just equally complicated for a physician bill that might pay $200. It's really complex work on the, just in terms of its base inherent design. And part of what we're trying to do is bring data, bring structure, bring technology and automation to continually simplify those sorts of things. The other part that makes this really difficult just besides the mechanics of it is there really are three parties involved in the process. There are actually more, but the three that are most relevant is the provider who delivers the care, the patient who got the care, but is a participant sometimes financially, and then the third party payer in the middle of that, whether that is Medicare, Medicaid on the government side, or uh, United, Aetna, Blue Cross, somebody else on the commercial side. And then you throw in workers' compensation, and we have all sorts of intermediaries. So one of the biggest challenges that providers have is helping their patients understand their financial obligation. And many patients, probably half of Americans, a little more, get their insurance through uh, an employer. And so you've got this additional party that's in the middle of it paying for uh, a large chunk of the benefits, but the patients pay part of the premium, they pay the copay, they pay the deductible. And so their part of it is really complicated as well. And because of physician practice, we'll see, you know, literally dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of different health insurance plans. They're not in a position to adequately explain to their patient, here's what your plan covers and doesn't cover. And so, there's lots of misunderstanding and miscommunication along the way 
about who's responsible uh, for that particular part of the bill. In fact, Rodney, in our patient call center, where statements go out, patients got a balance due, they, they can call and, and pay the bill, our team spends a tremendous amount of time not taking a credit card payment and clearing the balance, but explaining what's the difference between a copay and a deductible and out-of-pocket max, things that until the patient understands, they can't really get comfortable that $78 is their responsibility. And that part adds a lot of complexity to this that there's not really great answers for right now. But it's things like that that we help our clients manage. Nice. So you're working with these physicians, but are you guys the ones who are actually communicating with the patients and educating them on, like you're talking about deductibles and stuff like that? Because I feel like that does that not come from the insurance it, it should come from the employer or the insurance company that communication is not great so they've got part of it then when the practice schedules the patient and they the patient comes to check in at the beginning all that paperwork we all sign there's some additional education that takes place there and we partner with our clients on that communication at the front desk because they're really that's the only moment that somebody gets eyeball to eyeball with the patient and you, some of that communication can be more effective and then we're the last link of the chain when the patient gets the statement the claim's been filed the claim has been repriced based on the contract the insurance company has uh, paid at least what they believe is their part and the remainder of the balance rolls to the patient and we drop that patient a statement and we're the people on the other end of the phone call. So if they have questions about it, there's that third attempt at, at communication. And hopefully uh, we haven't completely and totally confused the patient somewhere along the way. Okay. Awesome. So not only is it already hard for these physicians to like master their craft and go about starting a business, but then they have to focus, like you said, on the data, the technology, the infrastructure to right. have all that stuff in place to make that part of their business optimized. But there's also the providers, the third-party payers and the patients that you need to get all on the same page. And you guys are trying to help the patient understand, like you said, their financial obligations and really right. just clarify for them. So it's not as confusing. And so that's where you guys come in. But for physicians who are listening, for example, like why, why choose a company like you guys or like what gives you guys that authority? Yeah, it's, that a, it's a great question. So we've been in this business a little over 20 years now. And the physician revenue cycle management business has long been, I could either do it in-house or I could use what was called a billing company. And often, those were small local firms. The advantages of them is the physicians would might know the owner and, and feel very close to them. But when we got in this business 20 years ago, this was mostly a, a labor-heavy business. Claims were processed manually. There was lots of sheets of paper. And when I first began selling the service, there was a lot of discussion between us and the clients. Do you want the people on your payroll? Or do you want the people on ours? And there were pros and cons both ways. Over the course of the 20 years, while the people are still extremely important because, because of the complexity, this is not like swiping your visa at the grocery store. 
However, there's been a tremendous increase in the amount of technology that's been deployed to automate these repetitive parts. And so as technology has grown, it, the business has gone from being a labor play, who, just who pays the humans with a little bit of technology cost, to now the, the technology part of the cost stack is relatively higher uh, than it was, and the labor portion is relatively lower. When you get to technology-driven uh, anything, size and scale matters. You have the ability to spread your investment across uh, a larger base, and you have the ability to bring in the talent necessary to make the technology work, which is just as important as what you pay for the technology itself. Consequently, practices that 20 years ago would have done just fine doing their billing in-house because they could manage the people are finding even if they're large they can't make some of the investments in software in hardware in technology talent that is necessary uh, now for this part of the process so it increasingly makes sense to outsource even like our largest client with almost 300 providers and they're a very sophisticated very capable organization it makes more sense for them to outsource that to us and let us deploy specialized investments and specialized talent. Then what they get to do is focus their money, their investment, their leadership capabilities, not on the plumbing, but on growing their practice and driving uh, improvements in care for their patients. So uh, the equation has switched now that it's more capital intensive. So outsourcing to size and scale. Awesome. And going back to that plumber analogy. So instead of them focusing on doing the plumbing, the internal stuff, they can focus right. on projects that improve their patient experience. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know, doing some to remodeling. Torture, to torture that analogy. And if you go buy a new house, you want to put your money and energy on the house, on the decorating, on the furniture. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to spend your Saturdays digging to lay pipe to bring water in and take sewage out. You want the developer or somebody else to manage that for you. <laughs> nice. And so I know this is very, like you said, it's not sexy, but it's important. And it can also be very complex, like a lot of other things within healthcare are. But what are some negative consequences for physicians who don't take this part of their business seriously or Mm-hmm. They they aren't putting as much focus on it. Yeah, it, it, it's a great question, and it's a pretty straightforward one because physician practices, like every other business, live and die on their cash flow, and and cash is the blood of the practice. So, just in you know real simple terms, you know, math doesn't work well on a podcast. We need a whiteboard, but we'll give it a shot. If a practice, say for example. For every dollar of cash that comes in after they pay the bills, the physicians keep 40 cents of every dollar. And that all varies by specialty and a whole variety of things. If your revenue cycle underperforms by two or three percent, so there's two or three cents on every dollar you might have collected that you didn't, that's probably a pretty good result because the cost of collecting every last cent, especially from patients, uh, gets really expensive. So let's say you collect 98 cents of every 
dollar you're entitled. And when it's all, you pay your bills, the doctors get to split 40 cents. Of that, if that 98 cents, if, if your revenue cycle is underperforming, and we've seen clients that are at, they're collecting 90 cents on every dollar, they're not collecting 98 cents. That eight cent difference, all the, all the expenses, the rent, the staff, the equipment are the same. So now the doctors are not taking home 40 cents of every dollar. They're taking home 32 cents. So that eight cents, it doesn't sound like a lot. is almost a 20% hit in physician income. And so this matters a lot. They work really hard taking care of their patients. We want to make sure that there are no unnecessary holes in their bucket and everything that they're entitled to, they get paid. The difference for many practices between whether or not they make it or they don't might be the difference in whether or not the physicians are properly compensated at a personal level for the work that they do. Awesome. And so on the flip side of that question, what sort of like positive impacts have you noticed personally with customers and clients that you've worked with who've actually taken the proper steps to managing their revenue cycle management? We won't repeat the math because it's just the opposite, right? Somebody who's collecting 35 or keeping 35 cents of every dollar, if you up that to 40, that's a big financial lift. So the opposite's true. But here's maybe two other really important things that come from a good revenue cycle. The first one is the patient's experience. Patients are actually not well suited to evaluate their provider on clinical terms. And so we know, for example, that much of how a patient rates their physician has to do with the customer service part of the experience. How easy was it to schedule? How was the office? How long did they wait? How nice was the physician? The things that we as non-clinicians can actually evaluate. We know that patients put a tremendous amount of weight on the financial side of their customer service evaluation, especially since it's oftentimes the very last thing. I've been to the doctor's office, did the surgery, the bill comes at the end. So if that experience is good, if the patients were properly communicated with, if they understood their obligations, if you know the, the statement's readable, if the person on the phone can help, they rate their providers better. So revenue cycle is an important part of the patient experience, which is an important part of how the patient feels about their physician. The second thing is, and this has been a, a growing part of our business for a long time, there's information about the physician's business that flows through the revenue cycle. I, I'm not just talking about information that says, hey, did I get paid what I was supposed to get paid? But there are things that come back and inform the practice about their business that help them make better business decisions. And we're increasingly siphoning that business information off, presenting it back to our clients to inform, hey, when you all are deciding what you want to do around growth, around physician compensation, around how you do and do not participate in certain health plans, manage care negotiations, your relationship with the hospital, the addition of service lines, all really important business strategy decisions. We're able to inform that with data just out of the plumbing that helps them make better decisions. And so that's not the same as turning yesterday's work into tomorrow's cash, but it's an important 
part of the value that we provide. Awesome. So doing a little bit of data analysis, essentially going through that feedback loop on gathering the data, interpreting it, yep. going back, making improvements and repeating Absolutely. the process over and over. Awesome. So that makes a lot of sense. And so working with these physicians, like I said, it could be very complicated with the te- data, the technology, the infrastructure. If the people don't focus on this, then they can potentially lose out on a lot of money if they're not optimizing that part of the process. But also if they do focus on this, then it allows them to improve their patient experience to help help them better with the reviews and stuff like that and overall branding right. and their patient size. And the question I have is, what is like the before state, before like a client or customer wants to work with you? What are they in and how are they feeling? And then what is that after state like? And how do you help take them through that transformation to get them to that, what they want to be? Yeah, it's a great question. Oftentimes when we encounter a client for the first time, they've got some level of frustration with the revenue cycle. They either know or are suspicious that they're not maximizing their collections, but their focus uh, is almost all on the back end. They look at what's going on with our accounts receivable. Is it growing? They may be looking at just as simple as money in the bank. There's lots of anecdotal stuff that's informing that opinion. I'm working as hard as I am, but I'm making less money. And I think what a good revenue cycle produces for them, this is what we've tried to build, is again, if we can help you understand the effects of the entire process, and we can bring data to that that will inform it, then we can together identify uh, where there really are gaps in performance that uh, could improve your cash flow or could improve your patient experience. Where we can attack that, where there would be a good return on the effort and the investment. So for example, I'm working with a client right now that again, look on the back end, accounts receivable seems too high. We've got a lot of denials. Those take a lot of work. Some of those denials turn into actual write-offs where we did the work, we don't get paid. Nobody likes that. Every part of that, nobody likes. However, when we look at it, it's not billing on the back end. They're their front desk and their scheduling, particularly for surgeries, is not doing a good job getting the pre-authorization from the insurance companies. So the patient shows up for the follow-up surgeries done, the claim is billed, the claim goes into the insurance company, and the insurance company holds up the contract with the doctor and says, in our contract with you, we said we don't have to pay for surgeries if you don't get authorization before they're done. So we go back to the client and and say, look, here are three or four of your locations that are really not doing a good job getting pre-authorization. There's nothing we can do on the back end. I don't care how many times we call the insurance companies. We can be nice. We can scream and yell. We can uh, talk to them in seven languages. They're not going to pay the claim because you didn't get the pre-authorization. So revenue cycle, the reason we shifted from talking about billing, which is back end, to revenue cycle, which is the whole front to back. This was a revenue cycle problem, but it was a front end revenue cycle problem. Let's fix pre-authorization. Let's get a good process. So if a patient's recommended for surgery, before they go to surgery, we've got the authorization number that we can put on the claim. 
it's not a, this particular case is, it's not a backend problem. So that's an example of, of where the partnerships got to really work together. This is very much, uh, used to be a throw it over the wall. We do work, you guys bill it, call the insurance company, scream and yell at them. And yeah. that's not the right way to maximize uh, your results. It's to think about it as a process from start to finish. Awesome. That makes a lot of sense. So we're coming up towards the end, but I do have one more question for you is sure. what sort of advice would you give to physician practices that are looking to work with a revenue cycle company? Yep. Now, it's a, it's a great question. Do your diligence, but recognize that you probably aren't really good at evaluating rev cycle companies because you just don't do it very often. It's, it's, again, to try to find a tortured analogy. Most of us do use a real estate broker when buying a house because most of us only end up buying one or two houses in our life. And the person on the other side might know a lot more than us. So we end up paying a commission for an advocate on our side that can help us navigate it. So you know, really do your homework. It, I have a dog in the hunt. And so I'll acknowledge the conflict of what I'm about to say. But if the only thing you evaluate is the price and you buy the lowest price revenue cycle company, don't be surprised uh, if you get the lowest price quality service and output on the back end. There are some things that we don't price shop for. We value shop for. We look for the total return. in buying a discounted parachute. Just don't think that's a good idea. And a good revenue cycle management company might cost you a little more, but they should produce more cash on the back end. So you're net ahead. Awesome. So you shouldn't be looking at just the cost, the price. You should be looking at the value, the convenience and stuff like that. Exactly. Look at the pile of money left over after the collections has improved and minus the fee you pay, as opposed to just what the sticker price is. Because uh, you could pay a 1% less and leave 5% on the table. And that sounds like a negative 4% swing for you. That's not a good idea. Ah, okay. See, a lot of things make sense when you just start breaking down the numbers, like even like you expect like physicians to make all this money, blah, blah, blah. When you broke it down, all right, for every $1 that comes in, they make 40 cents or stuff like that. I was like, ah, okay. So it makes a lot more sense. So we've been covering a lot of high level complex topics related to the revenue cycle, but I want to end the interview on a little lighter exercise I'd like to do called the rapid fire round. So I'll ask you a couple questions and you just give me whatever answer you come up with. This is where it gets dangerous, right? So question number one is what is your favorite book of all time? Favorite book of all time. I, I always vary. Let me go with East of Eden by John Steinbeck just because I reread it recently. Okay. Number two, who is the most influential person in your life or career? Oh, it's that, cute little nurse that found in Tulsa, Oklahoma. My wife has, bless her heart, as we used to say in the South, uh, she's had to live with me, but she's helped from convincing me that having matching plastic NFL cups does not constitute a dining set uh, to just you know, be a better man, husband, father, and boss. She gets a lot of credit. That, that's funny. Who's your team? I've always been the hometown guy. So currently living in Colorado, Let's just say there's some goods and bads. And uh, right now, because of the season, we'll say go Nuggets and go Avalanche. Uh, Come on, Broncos and Rockets. Broncos, okay. (laughs) Awesome. What is one goal you want to accomplish this year? 
One thing I want to do this year is I am a, a self-taught and not very good artist. Most of my stuff never leaves the basement, but it's great therapy for me. And I'm trying to expand a little bit, try some different things and different techniques, most of which end up getting very quickly painted over because there was a large gap between uh, the vision and what ended up on the canvas. But yeah, I'm trying to continue to push myself a little bit, but it's a lot of fun. Again, very therapeutic for me to go down at the end of the day and put some paint on canvas. Nice. You do that thing behind you, that painting behind no, you? No, that's actually the, the piece that Rodney's referring to is a diptych behind my head by one of my daughters. Actually, ah. I've got a couple of very creative daughters. Uh, my son, not so much, at least this kind of creativity, but uh, the girl. Send this the, to him. This one is one from our youngest. Awesome. Awesome. And then last but not least, what is one piece of advice you would give to your 20 year old self? One piece of advice I would have given my younger self. Yes. It's funny. And I'm, I'm a big picture growth oriented guy, but I would say go faster, take more risk. It's okay to fail. Failure is gosh, one of the best learning, not just intellectual learning, but learning about yourself, learning about your character and the people who you know do stuff that matters, whether it's raising the kids or being a good neighbor or building a company. They all tried something that had a great possibility of not working out. And in fact, in many cases, it didn't work out like expected, but that didn't necessarily mean it was a failure. So I would say, go faster, take more risk. It's going to be okay. The people who love you and take a shot. So. Awesome. I think that's an excellent piece of advice and a perfect way to end today's episode. So Tim, I just want to thank you again for jumping on sharing your story, sharing what you're doing over at ALN and really trying to simplify the revenue cycle management <laughs> topic, which I think we did because I feel like I learned a lot from it. And I know our audience will learn a lot from it as well. Um, but before you leave, where can people connect with you? Where can they learn a little bit more about your company? Hey, best place to go to our website, alnmm.com. And uh, if you're there, we've got a couple of videos that talk about how we view the world. And uh, I write a weekly blog uh, for independent physicians, just about the things that are on their mind, uh, you know, subscribe there. We love to uh, have you read along with this couple minutes uh, once a week about big picture stuff in healthcare. Awesome. And I'll be sure to include all those links in the show notes and the resources. But with that being said, that ends today's episode. Catch you guys on the next one.